Make sure you have your Bibles in hand as we continue our look at the life of Paul. Today, we'll be tackling part three of this message series that I'm calling Paul and Ananias. Uh, this past week, as I was thinking about Saul's Damascus Road experience, I got to thinking about Balaam from the Old Testament. Do you remember Balaam? Uh, in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, there are two animals that we are told spoke. There was a snake and there was a donkey. Balaam owned one of those and it wasn't the snake. It was one of these guys. And so Balaam's talking donkey, many of you may remember the story. It's told in Numbers chapter 22. Uh, there was this Moabite king at the time named King Balak, and he realizes that the nation that he was leading was too small and weak to conquer Israel if Israel wanted to attack. And so what King Balak does is he goes and hires a prophet by the name of Balaam. He was a pagan prophet, but Balak hired Balaam to come and curse the nation of Israel so that his own nation would stand a chance against them in a war. And so you may remember what happens. Uh, Balaam goes to God in prayer and says, well, what do you want me to do? Should I curse this nation Israel? And God says, no. I want you to go with King Balak's messengers, but only do what I tell you to do. Well, you may remember what happens next. Balaam gets on his little donkey the next morning, and he's heading off to meet up with King Balak. And all of a sudden, God thwarts his plans. It says an angel of the Lord, who we believe was most likely Jesus Christ himself, stands in front of Balaam and his donkey on the road that he was traveling. And that donkey sees that angel of the Lord, but Balaam doesn't. And so the donkey does everything in its power to scurry away from that angel because that angel was bearing a sword. If it was Jesus, Jesus himself was bearing the sword of judgment. And so that little donkey is scared to death, but Balaam can't see Jesus in front of him. So he starts beating his donkey with a stick. And he does this three times. His donkey eventually collapses underneath him. And one of the craziest things in the Old Testament starts to happen. The donkey starts talking to his master Balaam. And the donkey says, why are you beating me? Why are you beating me? It says in Numbers twenty-two twenty-six, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? So the only thing crazier than a donkey talking is the donkey's owner talking back. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens here. Balaam starts talking back with his donkey. He's so, he's so crazed, uh, upset, and angry, he doesn't even stop to think, wait a minute, this is kind of weird, my donkey's talking. He starts arguing with his donkey, and then in verse 22 it says, actually verse 32, the angel opens, or Jesus himself, opens Balaam's eyes. He sees the Lord with the sword drawn for the first time. And in verse 32, Jesus speaks and says, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. I want you to consider the striking similarities between Balaam and Saul. For starters, at the time they encountered Jesus Christ, both were riding either a donkey or a horse. 
Both men were riding down the road on that donkey or horse, but that's not all. On the road to Moab, Balaam was dead set on persecuting God's people by cursing Israel. Similarly, on the road to Damascus, Saul was dead set on persecuting God's people by arresting Christians. And so I want to share this insight with you. Both men were going somewhere God didn't want them to go, to do something God didn't want them to do with motives God didn't want them to have. And God gave both men a very clear message. Your path is a reckless one before me. I want you to internalize those words as we dive into this message today. Your path is a reckless one before me. As we saw last Sunday on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus was given this huge wake-up call. It was really a watershed moment in Saul's life as Jesus Christ appeared to him in resurrected form. Jesus knocked him off his high horse literally as he appeared to him in a blinding light. And he asked Saul point blank in Acts 9 verse 4, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? For months, Saul had been uh, running around Jerusalem, barging into synagogues and uh, barging into people's personal homes, arresting Christian men and women. Some he would throw in jail. Uh, Others he would whip uh, to the point of of being bloody and bruised. Uh, Others he would cast his vote against so that they could be killed by a mob. On the road to Damascus, though, everything changed. Saul came face to face with Jesus, who Saul thought was dead, but obviously was very much alive as he appeared to Saul on that road. And so as Saul underwent that first part of his conversion, he thought to himself, oh, my God, what have I done? What have I done? It turned his world upside down. Saul lay on the ground overcome by fear and guilt and regret. And he asked Jesus the best question he could have ever asked in that moment. He asked, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? And we read in Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18, as Paul later on in his ministry is sharing his own account of his conversion. He writes in Acts 26, 16 through 18, That God said to him, Jesus said to him, now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Well, that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 9, verse 8. So please make sure you're there in your Bibles. I mentioned to you last week that Saul's conversion is recorded three times in the book of Acts. It's recorded in Acts chapter 9, where we'll be focused today together. Uh, It's also shared by Paul himself in Acts 22, verses 2 through 16, and also in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 20. Now, Paul's account of his conversion there in Acts 22 and Acts 26, 
26, he adds a little more detail in those two accounts. And so just like I did last week, I'm going to read an account with all three combined. And so you can follow along in Acts chapter 9, verses 8 through 22. But as I get to a part that you're not seeing there in those verses in Acts 9, it's because I'm pulling it from Acts 22 or Acts 26. Now we're going to put it on the screen for you, for those of you who are watching by video. So you'll be able to see color-coded. Anything from Acts 9 is in black. Anything from Acts 22 is in blue. Anything from Acts 26 will be in green. So please follow along as I share with you this combined account of the second half of Paul's conversion, beginning in Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing because the brilliance of the light had blinded him. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. He stood beside Saul, placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul, receive your sight. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. Then Ananias said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So Saul got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. He spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. May God bless us as we study his word today. Well, one of the many things I love about the Bible is how it highlights in both the Old and the New Testament some of these little guys, obscure men and women, who may be mentioned for only a verse, maybe a few verses, and then they disappear off the scene. But God used those obscure men and women 
to make a powerful difference in the course of events in Scripture. God used those men and women to change the world. I do love the little guys. That's why the first book that I wrote back in 2013 was all about spotlighting over a dozen of the most obscure characters in the Old Testament. Uh, ones like Shifra and Pua and Eldad and Medad and one of my all-time favorites, Hulda. Great Bible characters who were the little guys that God used in an amazing way. If I were to ever do a follow-up to that book about little-known uh, New Testament characters, I'm pretty sure I would devote a whole chapter to Ananias. Ananias is one of those characters who appears in verse 10 of Acts chapter 9 and completely disappears off the scene just 10 verses later. We never hear of, of him again other than when Paul is giving an account of his conversion in Acts chapter 22. I don't know about you, but I find it very interesting and inspiring that God uses this obscure Christian named Ananias, who we know next to nothing about, to play such a pivotal role in the conversion of a man who went on to write half of the books of the New Testament and become the most influential Christian leader of the past 2,000 years. I just love it. Paul went on to become this amazing, influential Christian, and God allowed little Ananias to have a key role in it. That's an amazing thing. God didn't choose the Apostle Peter to lead Saul to Christ. God didn't choose the apostles John or James to lead him to Christ. God didn't even choose uh, the deacon Philip from Acts chapter 8 to lead him to Christ. God chose this man Ananias, who we know next to nothing about, to lead him to Christ. And most likely Ananias would be the one to baptize him as well. Well, here in Acts chapter 9 verse 10, we're simply told that Ananias was a disciple who was in Damascus. Apparently, that's where he lived. He was probably a resident there in Damascus. Some historians believe he was the head elder or bishop of the Christian church there in Damascus, but we have no way of knowing that for sure. Paul gives us a little bit more detail about Ananias and his conversion account. Over in Acts 22, verse 12, Paul says this. He says, Ananias was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there in Damascus. So that's all we know about him. He was a devoted Jewish Christian. He obeyed God's Old Testament laws. He didn't just talk the talk, but he walked the walk, which earned him the respect of the Jews in town. But he was first and foremost a disciple. First and foremost, he was a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Three days after Jesus Christ appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road, Jesus appeared to Ananias in a vision. Uh, we don't know exactly what a vision looked like in, in Bible times, but it was most likely like a dream, but Ananias was awake. And so it's, think of it like a dream, but you're still awake at the time when you have it. Well, in verses 10 through 12, Jesus calls out to Ananias in this vision. He calls out Ananias. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Asks for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. As soon as Jesus calls to Ananias, Ananias answers, yes, Lord. Now, if you ever hear God call to you 
whether it's a dream or a vision or God is just speaking so clearly to your heart. Uh, whenever God speaks to you, this is the best answer you can give God. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Or as Samuel said in Old Testament times, yes, Lord, I am your servant and I am listening. That's basically what Ananias says here. Yes, Lord, I'm listening to whatever you have to tell me right now. Once Ananias listens to what Jesus has to say, however, (laughs) he's not so thrilled about the message. Uh, He's floored by what Jesus tells him. He can't believe what he's hearing. He's likely thinking to himself, Judas on Straight Street? I don't know any Judas on Straight Street. Saul of Tarsus? Now, there's a guy I've heard of. In fact, every Christian in the whole town has heard of Saul of Tarsus. Man, that guy's wicked. He's coming up here to clean our clocks. He's coming up here to arrest every Christian he can find. Saul of Tarsus, his reputation precedes him. We all know about him. And if he's blind Jesus, it's probably best that he stay that way. At least he can't find the Christians. Well, Ananias can't keep quiet about his concerns. He speaks up there in verses 13 and 14 of Acts 9. He says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. There's no doubt Ananias is worried. Ananias is baffled. And we really can't blame him, can we? We can't blame him. Back in 2002, Pastor Chuck Swindoll wrote a book on the life of Paul. It's a marvelous book. I'd recommend it as a companion to this message series. And Chuck Swindoll called that book, Paul, a man of grace and grit. It's a good book. And in chapter 3, as he's talking about Ananias, he gives us this great analogy. Chuck Swindoll writes, Let's pretend it's 1940. You have moved to the outskirts of Vienna, Austria. The Nazis have occupied the beloved city you once called home. Now the entire country has fallen under Nazi occupation. You are Jewish. Most of your relatives have vanished, arrested secretly in the night, in the cover of darkness by armed soldiers. The night before your planned escape, you've awakened by a strange presence in your bedroom. Rubbing your eyes, you apprehensively sit up in bed and try to focus your thoughts. Am I dreaming? Fear grips you, but then out of the darkness comes a voice saying, Arise. Go to a street named Wickenburg, just to the west of the University of Vienna. There you will find a home owned by Franz Kaiser. When you enter there, you'll find a man from Braunau, Upper Austria. His name is Adolf Hitler. I have appeared to him, and he is now praying. He is blind, and I've revealed myself to him. Go and touch him, and he will regain his sight, and he will save your people. Wow. Here's the million-dollar question. How would you respond? What would you do? What would you do? Can you understand a little bit better how how baffled Ananias must have been? How confused he must have been by these marching orders that Jesus Christ had just given him in that vision? Certainly he was thinking, yes, Lord, I I believe you can change 
and soften any hard heart. I believe you can open any closed mind. But Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus, really? Are you joking with me, God? You can't be serious. Do you know this guy? Do you know what he's been doing? Do you know what he plans on doing? Certainly you have the wrong guy in mind. Ananias is shocked, and he's scared, and he's confused. In that moment, what God is asking him to do doesn't make any sense. Sounds crazy to him. But God isn't interested in having a debate with Ananias. God patiently listens as Ananias expresses his concerns in verse 14. But in verse 15, God responds by simply saying, Go! Go, Ananias. This man, Saul of Tarsus, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Jesus Christ, in essence, is saying, Ananias, you don't have to understand my perfect plan, but you do need to obey it. I need someone who can effectively share Jesus with both Jews and Gentiles. I need someone who can effectively share Jesus in synagogues and in king's palaces. And I need someone who can effectively share Jesus while enduring immense pressure and suffering. Ananias, Saul of Tarsus, is that man. He's the man I have chosen. So go. 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 I've always found it rather baffling how Jesus ends his conversation with Ananias in verse 16. He's saying, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for my name. What a, what a curious thing for Jesus to say. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's really just kind of puzzled me over the years. But think about it. Years later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, this is what Paul himself would say. He would write, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of what? Of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Huh. Paul actually welcomed suffering. He welcomed suffering when it served at least one of these two purposes. Number one, if that suffering helped him to get to know Jesus Christ better. It's right there in the verse. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to know Christ through those sufferings. And also he welcomed sufferings when those sufferings brought glory to God. As long as those sufferings helped him know God better and help bring glory to God, he was more than happy and said, bring it on. Bring it on. I'm willing to suffer and even die for Christ. Now, it's a good thing that Paul welcomed suffering because over the next 30 years after his conversion, he had to endure a lot of it. Listen to Paul's account of his sufferings for Christ that he tells us about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is what he writes. I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles. 
That's enough, but he's not through yet. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers, I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He goes on to say, who suffers and I don't suffer? I I suffer more than just about anyone else. And Jesus knew that from the very moment he met him on the road to Damascus. He chose someone who can endure a whole lot of suffering for his name. Without a doubt, over the 30 years or so that Paul was a Christian, Jesus did show him how much he must suffer for Christ's name. And that great suffering helped shape Paul into the most influential Christian leader of the past 2,000 years. I want you to listen to what Chuck Swindoll says about suffering. This is so good. He writes, Suffering. Down through the centuries, it has been God's taming ground for raging bulls. The crucible of pain and hardship is God's schoolroom where Christians learn humility, compassion, character, patience, and grace. Suffering changed Saul. It has changed me. And it changes everyone. Isn't that so true? God uses suffering. Some of us do everything in our power to avoid suffering. But more times than not, Jesus doesn't call Christians to avoid suffering. He calls us to embrace it. He really does. Let it humble you. Let suffering refine your character. Let suffering teach you more compassion and and patience and grace. You see, God doesn't waste our suffering, so neither should we. Neither should we. Well, let's pick up in verse 17. In all likelihood, Ananias was still worried and still confused, but he obeyed the word of the Lord. He went to Judas' house on Straight Street and he asked to see Saul. He was led to where Saul was. And when Ananias came to where Saul was, he was surprised by the man in front of him. He saw that man was praying. Saul didn't look at all like a, a bloodthirsty wolf. He didn't look angry or bitter or full of himself. He looked like a humble, desperate man praying for God's mercy and grace that he knew he didn't deserve. Saul hadn't eaten anything in three days. He hadn't had a drop of water in three days. He was sitting there as a broken man there in Judas's house. And Ananias began to see what God saw. He walked over to Saul. He placed his hands on him. And notice what he says. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may again see... And be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want you to miss two very important things in what we read here. First, notice that Ananias placed his hands on Saul. Remember at this time, Saul was blind. He couldn't see a thing. So he couldn't see Ananias. But he certainly could feel the strong and loving hands of Ananias on his shoulders. He could feel that even though he couldn't see it. Next, notice that Ananias called him brother. Now, oftentimes we read through this passage and we don't think much about it, but this is a very, very significant word. The first word that Ananias speaks, 
Think about this. It had been three days since Saul had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he was waiting when he arrived in town the first day for this guy Ananias to show up. And the second day and the third day. And certainly he was beginning to get a little worried. And finally, Ananias shows up places his hands on his shoulder. This was likely the first Christian who spoke a word to Saul after his Damascus Road experience with Jesus Christ. And the very first word he hears from a Christian was brother. Certainly over that three days he had wondered, Jesus, if I truly do surrender my life to you and become a Christian, will any Christian ever accept me? Because they know what I've done. They know how I've persecuted them. Will I ever be accepted? Will they ever call me brother? And the very first word he hears is brother. That's powerful. It's really, really powerful. According to Paul's own account in Acts 22, verse 13, Ananias said the words, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and immediately he could see again. He could see Ananias for the first time. So right after that, Ananias tells Saul the amazing news. He says, the God of our fathers has chosen you. Congratulations. Well, I entered that part, but congratulations. God has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And Saul wastes no time. He does exactly what Ananias says he should do. He doesn't make a quick pit stop at the bathroom. He doesn't grab a little snack to tide him over. He's certainly hungry. He hasn't eaten in three days. But he doesn't grab a snack. He doesn't even grab a sip of water. He gets up and heads for the river to be baptized. In all likelihood, Saul was baptized in the Barada River. That's one of the main rivers that still runs uh, through Damascus today. And so that river that still runs through Damascus today, is conveniently located very close to a certain street that still exists today. Guess what that street is called? It's called the Straight Road. The road and the river still exist today. And Saul, most likely by Ananias, was baptized there in the waters. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. He confessed Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he was buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk a brand new life. Ananias, chosen by God, not simply to lead Saul the rest of the way to the point of conversion, but to lead him in his confession of faith. And most likely Ananias was the one to baptize him. I wish I could have been there. Don't you? That would have been awesome. To see that with our own eyes. Saul came up out of the water. He dried off. He had something to eat and drink. By this point, there was no doubt. Saul of Tarsus was a new man. A changed man. The old had gone. The new had come. He was no longer a persecutor of Christ. He was now a follower of Christ. He would no longer destroy the church. Now he was ready to roll up his sleeves and help build the church bigger and stronger than ever. In Acts 26, verse 19, Paul says plainly, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. 
He paid attention to what Jesus had said to him on the Damascus Road, and he carried that with him every day of his life from that point forward. He was not disobedient. And according to Acts 9, verses 20 through 22, at once Saul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus Jesus is the Christ. Amen. Let's give our God some praise and some glory today. Amen. In his mercy and grace, Jesus had not only transformed a wolf into a sheep, he had transformed a wolf into a shepherd. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Well, I want to share with you in closing four very important life lessons. I I wish I had more time to spend on each of these. I don't have a lot of time, so I'll just touch on them briefly. But please write these down. These are so important. Life lesson number one. At times, even if you are a Christian, Jesus Christ will say the same thing to you that he said to both Balaam and Saul. Your path is a reckless one before me, and you need to repent. Your path is a reckless one before me, and you need to repent. I want you to ask yourself a question and answer it honestly. As I look back over the past few weeks, have I been on a reckless path before the Lord? Ask yourself that and answer it honestly. Have I been on a reckless path before the Lord? If so, Jesus Christ is confronting you today, just as he confronted Balaam, and just as he confronted Saul, he is confronting you. He is asking you today, why have you been calling a friend to spread gossip? Why have you been thinking about visiting that skanky website? Why have you, a married Christian woman, been texting your ex-boyfriend? Why are you planning to cheat on your income taxes? Why am I an afterthought in your life? Your priorities are more like those of an atheist than they are like those of a Christian. Jesus confronts us, speaking to our hearts, and he says, Stop! Just stop! Your path is a reckless one before me. Whatever your specifics are, if you look back over your life in the past few weeks or the past few months and you realize you have been on a reckless path, Just like with Balaam and just like with Saul, Jesus is calling you to repent from that sin today. Stop your reckless path and get on the path of Jesus Christ. I like what happens here with Ananias. Ananias in chapter 15 of, well, let me hold that thought. Let me give you lesson number two first. Lesson number two. Jesus chose Saul long before Saul chose Jesus. Similarly, Jesus chose you long before you chose Jesus. So take it to heart. You have been chosen by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. You've been chosen by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Over in John chapter 15, verse 16. We find this powerful verse from Jesus. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I love how Jesus said to Ananias in verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, he said, Saul is my chosen instrument. In other words, Ananias, it doesn't matter if you think he's the wrong guy for the job. I chose him. He's my chosen instrument. Think about that, Christian. God chose you before you ever chose him. He chose you. What an honor and privilege. You need to live out that calling. And that leads us to lesson number three. The vast majority of us are called to be Ananias's, not Saul's. Without fame or fortune, God calls us in our obscurity to do precisely what he asks us to do. When he asks us to do it, you and I need to accept and live out our calling. I love how Chuck Swindoll puts it. He says it this way. A rare few in God's family enjoy fame and renown, position and influence. The great majority, however, are the Ananiases of the world. The errand runners, if you will, doing precisely what God has asked them to do in precisely the place he has called them to go. They keep the body functioning in good health. None will ever know until eternity dawns the enormity of their investment in the cause of Christ. Do not be ashamed if God has called you to be an Ananias. Be proud of that. And you, in your obscurity, even though millions of people will never know your name, and churches around the nation will never know about you, you do exactly what God has called you to do, exactly where he has put you to do it. And in that relative obscurity, God will use you to change the world, just like he used Ananias in a very unique and special way, in a brief moment, to set the stage for Saul to write half the books of the New Testament. I can't wait to see in heaven as I look back with the vantage point of heaven how many of you impacted this world in powerful ways you were oblivious to because you were simply faithful in your obedience to Christ in the little ways, right where he put you. Finally, lesson number four. Jesus Christ is full of surprises. So don't get too comfortable where you are. Don't get too comfortable where you are physically, emotionally, spiritually, or geographically. God has a way of shaking up your plans to stretch you and move you into deeper levels of trust and obedience. And with these four life lessons in mind, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you thanking you, O God, Thanking you, O God, that even though all of us at some point or another have been on a reckless path, that you stopped us and you have brought us back to you. And even for those of us today, Lord, who are right now on a reckless path, you are lovingly and patiently saying, stop. Get off your path of recklessness in my sight and get back on the narrow road of life. That leads to heaven. Lord, thank you for waking us up when we've been reckless. Next, Lord, I want to thank you for choosing Saul before Saul chose you. 
I thank you for choosing me before I chose you. And every Christian who's listening to this prayer, you chose them before they chose you. I thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to not take advantage or squander this wonderful privilege to have been chosen by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I thank you that most of us are called to be Ananias's, and that's part of your perfect plan. Help us not to squander our time hoping to be a Saul that everyone knows our name and every Christian listens to us and we bring millions of people to Christ single-handedly. Lord, help us to be content as Ananias is right where you've placed us. We want to be faithful to you. Thank you, Lord, for our calling. Help us to accept it and live it out. And finally, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your surprises. Thank you for your surprises, the way you work that completely catch us off guard. Help us, Lord, not to be so entrenched in where we live, so entrenched in our job, maybe even so entrenched in our own church. Lord, that we fail to be moved by you when you call us to go and do something that's unexpected or different. Lord, help us to be ready, not just to do what we expect you to tell us to do, but be ready to obey when you give us the unexpected marching orders like you gave to Ananias. Help us to walk in obedience to you and help us to trust you in all things and in all marching orders for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know about you, but I loved this passage today. I hope it was a blessing to you. It sure was a blessing to me. I love diving into God's word and preparing these messages. I usually do this on Thursday each week. And Thursday is one of my favorite days of the week because that's the day I get to one-on-one meet with God, dive into his word and prepare these messages. So I really hope that this was a blessing to you. Uh, If you have never accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't drag your feet. Don't wait for a Damascus Road experience next week or next month or next year because it may not come. You're having a Damascus Road moment right now. Jesus is saying today is the day you need to turn from your sin. You need to get off your path of recklessness and start following me. If you have that decision to make, it's not complicated. Serving Jesus is hard, but it's really not complicated. He says, A, admit that you were a sinner. And you need a Savior. B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And be at a point where you're ready to turn from your sins. And C, choose to begin following Jesus as your Savior and Lord beginning today. If you'd like us to help with that decision, we'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Reach out to us at our uh, phone number at the church, 760-246-4100. Once again, 760-246-4100. 4100 or email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. We'd love to hear from you right now if we can help lead you in that step to accept Christ and to be baptized in obedience to his command. Well, God bless you as you continue to dive into his word. As I mentioned last week, I'll mention it one more time. I'd love for you to read all three accounts in the book of Acts describing Saul's conversion to Christ. You can read it in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. So that's your first homework assignment for this week. Read those three versions of Saul's account of coming to Christ. And homework assignment number two, live it out for the glory of God. God bless you.